0: Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone. Thanks for being here today. Good morning. There we go, you guys are, there we go. It's good to see you, it's a quiet crowd today. We need the kids to kind of stir up some stuff, don't we? I'm Brent, I'm the lead pastor here, and man, it's great to be here today. Fall weather's among us, Hawkeye fans, I'm sorry. Razorbacks lost too, it's fine, you know. The only two, God is still good. He's still running after us, all that good stuff, that's right. It's a day of lament, evidently. I need you to uh, think back with me. Way back, uh, way back, preschool. Anybody remember preschool? I don't. I have no memory that far. Anybody remember preschool? No. Kindergarten, anybody remember kindergarten? Okay, we remember some of those. So we're gonna take a, a step back a little bit, but do you remember maybe in preschool, maybe kindergarten or first grade, where we had these worksheets that were called in the right order? You remember those? So look at the screen here in the right order. And you would have this and it would say, what happened first? Uh, And it just says, you know, check the one that happened first. Pretty easy, right? Well, then as you grow up a little bit, get from preschool to first or kindergarten, it gets a little more difficult and you would see something like this, oh my goodness. You know, now you have three options, which one was first, which one was second, and which one was third. And then for some reason, I'm not sure why, but they decided to make it a lot more difficult. But in doing so, they took all the fun out of it because they took out all the pictures, put a whole bunch of words on the page, and then you got stuff like this. Talk about taking all the fun out of learning how to make a pizza, right, Luke? I mean, that's not even fun at all. But the whole... So... The question for you is this. This is where we all kind of started with reading comprehension. Why did, why did we go through these exercises? Anybody know? Train your, brain. Train your brain. Okay, anything else? There's an order to things. Uh, you know. Okay. It's trying to help us understand that there is an order to things, and those things matter, in how we understand things. Now, if you're like me, as we get to high school, then they introduce the fun stuff like the stream of consciousness writers. You guys remember those? Like Virginia Woolf or uh, William Faulkner. Anybody read either of these books on the screen? I read Sound and Fury. Anybody read that one? I mean, it's just uh, high school back in, I mean, craziness, you know? And that's where everything is non-linear. And then as you read this book, you're trying to piece together things and it's just not nearly as easy to understand. Like why why have they jumped around? Are we in the present? Are we in the future? Are we in the past? We don't know. But the point of this is that how things unfold, how things happen is important. When there's an order to things, That matters, and we need to pay attention to those things. After all, why do we do those worksheets with small kids, with small children? It's for reading comprehension. It's to comprehend, and by definition, reading comprehension is to understand the meaning of what is written, to be able to make sense of what you're reading, or in some cases, hearing. It's the whole idea of, do you get it? You look at it, and you go, do you get it? And that's, that's important because once we get it, it really doesn't even, a lot of times, it doesn't even matter if we remember all the specifics of everything. If we get it, we understand the concept and the idea, and it really can begin to shape and transform us. It can begin to make an impact on how we think about the story, or even if it's something having to do with our lives and how we live. So there's a flow and an order that help that uh, understanding the order of things helps us make sense of what is being communicated. That's important. And so we've been talking the last few weeks. We've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a series of churches in a region called Galatia, which is in southern Turkey for us today. And he's really upset with these people because they've heard the message of Jesus, they were following Jesus, but they were willing to make a trade, a trade for what Paul had taught them and told them, to this new message that shifted the religious responsibility of their faith from God, from Jesus to themselves. And they were willing to do that. And today, we're gonna look and we're gonna see how Paul uses this idea of the order of things especially from the Old Testament, how he found, how he uses that to say, when you get these things out of order, the good news is less good news. But if we understand how God has been acting in history, how God has been revealing himself, you'll discover this is really genuinely amazing news. And he's looking to just overcome this tragic misunderstanding of God the work of Jesus, and especially our relationship with God. I'm going to warn you, we're going to be reading a lot of Galatians chapter 3 today, but I love what Paul has to say here. So let's dive right in. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you want to look, it'll be on the screens. And here's how he begins this part of the letter. You foolish Galatians. Now right there, you know, we're, we're in for some fun, right? Anybody got that email before? You foolish person. Yeah. He says, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Look, there he is again, building him up. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? I mean, if it, if it really was in vain... So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Now, if you think, if you were here last week and you heard Amy talk about uh, the problem of the law and that if we could get righteousness that way, then Paul says Christ died for nothing. And as Paul continues to write, as he unfolds this, he poses to them six hypothetical questions. He's not looking for them to answer them, but really it's the same question asked six different ways, asking them to really think through, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why have you made this decision to walk away from this faith that you had? And he starts with this question, who bewitched you? which more probably literally translated would be who put a spell on you? I mean, they believed in spells. They believed in this kind of thing back then. And so that he was saying, somebody come in and put a spell on you. And I don't think Paul actually meant somebody did, but he's trying to shake him up. It's a, a critical question. Who put a spell on you? And then he says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? By works, by something you did, or was it just by believing this message that I have? And we need to think about the implications of Paul saying this. How did you receive the Spirit? Because in this time, in the first century church, when the Spirit came upon people, it came usually with the miraculous. I mean, when you read about it in Acts 2, they spoke in tongues and miracles are being done. Acts 10 at Cornelius' house, they have kind of a similar experience. And so when Paul says, how did you receive the Spirit? He's actually saying, we've seen this you've experienced this think back for just a moment how did you receive it and he's notice he's not saying you received a false spirit you didn't receive a spirit at all. he's like no you received the spirit of god think back how did that happen to you how was your experience in that which is interesting because he wants him to think back to an experience and then he says are you so foolish again got this idea he's he's not holding any punches here And at some point, you're either going to feel some guilt or shame over what Paul's saying, or you're just going to get angry about it. You know, he keeps calling you a fool. It's like, now hold on, can we stop a moment? Or you'll dig in and say, "Why why is he saying it this harshly? And he says, are you now trying to finish by the flesh by what you do? He's like saying, you knew this started in this way, but now you've shifted. Why are you doing that? Are you trying to push God out of the way now? Are you trying to say, no, 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 God, I've got this? I mean, I understand that personally. I mean, I've seen many times God doing something in my life, and then I say, oh, God, I got this now. Don't need to pray about it anymore. Don't need to seek you. Don't need to ask. No, I got this, God. And that's what he's asking them. And then he says, was your previous experience in vain? Was it pointless? Was there a meaning behind what you actually experienced? And that experience question again and then he asked that final question, was the spirit given by works or, be, uh, or belief? Paul is agitated. I can relate. I can relate, maybe you can too. Something happens and you start working it over in your mind, you start seeing people move and you start understanding and the more you think about something, the more you dwell on it, the angrier or the more frustrated you get. Anybody ever done that before? Never. Just me. Thank you. And for Paul, he's dumbfounded. Why can't they remember what they experienced? Why can't they remember what they went through? How could they forget this so easily? And for us, there's a challenge here because sometimes in our Christian experience world, we want to take experience and say that that it's less than Intel, you know understanding information the mind and yet here Paul is clearly bringing that saying your experiences matter there's validity to what you went through but I need you to think back to that moment I need you to think back and maybe you need to in this moment if you're following Jesus you know sometimes we get a little cold sometimes we move away sometimes our faith begins to dwindle we have some questions or doubts and we don't experience things and Maybe we need to do what Paul's saying, even in saying, going back, go back to that experience when you first followed Jesus, when you came face to face with Christ. What was that like? Paul is bringing them back to that moment, their first experience of, of knowing and experiencing God. And what the, what Paul is continuing to address is this group of agitators that have come in And what they're essentially trying to do is convince these people that they're not in, they're not following Jesus, that they haven't done enough. They haven't gone far enough, done everything that's required. And so as they listen to these people's message, they would go, hmm, I wonder if we are in. Maybe we do need to change. And Paul's looking at them in this moment saying, this isn't the problem. You already know Jesus, you are already in, that's not the problem. But the agitators were coming in and telling them something like this. Yeah, what Paul said is fine, but you gotta go further. Because I mean, think about it, you're just, you're not good enough yet. There's more that has to be done in order for you to really be a child of God. There's more that you have to do. And Paul tells them, you know, think back, before these agitators came in, before you had all these questions in your mind, think back. What brought you to Christ? What brought you to faith? What helped you get there? And it wasn't anything you did. It was an experience with God. But I must admit, I understand the people here in these churches. I understand their questions. I get it. I mean, do you? Have I done enough? Anybody else struggle with that question sometime? Have I done enough? Is God happy with me? Am I doing this right? That's my question, really. Am I doing this right? I mean, you sit, sit back and you think about the gospel of Jesus, this good news that says everything you've needed has already been done by God through Jesus on the cross. If you believe it, you're in. That's it. I mean, there's no, it's not any more complicated than that. And yet sometimes we want to sit back and go, but is it really as easy as that? It really can't be that easy, right? I mean, here we're talking about a free gift of rescue and salvation, freedom from sin. Paul's going to tell us we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. And you're telling me I can get all this because of what somebody else has done? All because of what Jesus did I can avail myself to? No, no, that that can't be it. There's gotta be more. And I think it's human nature for us to sit back and question that. I think it's human nature for us to sit back and say, am I doing this right? Have I really done enough? As I said, I understand this thinking. And when you have all these voices around you and here in this time with these people, there were these supposed experts, those who acted and sounded like they had it all together and they come in and they tell you otherwise, you listen. And you have this mistaken thinking confirmed. Well, yeah, they're telling me I haven't done enough. Yeah, I haven't done enough. So there's gotta be more. That's a challenge for us. That's a challenge. And we have to figure out what Paul is going to tell them to get us through this. And so what Paul does is he jumps to this place and he says to them, basically, it's not about what you can do. It's about what has been done. It's not, have you done enough? What's needed to be done has been done. It's about God, what he did through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you know this, Paul tells them, because you have received the Spirit. And then Paul does something very interesting. He begins to prove his point. And how he proves his point is very interesting because then he goes back to the Old Testament. And I know sometimes we look at the Old Testament like, oh, no, 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 I don't wanna deal with the Old Testament. It's challenging, it's complicated. I don't know how to co- really understand God in the Old Testament, so let's just, let's focus on the new. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, look, you can't get away from a faith that's founded in and on the Old Testament and he talks to them about maybe some confusing events along the way, they say, help, let me help you understand this. Let's keep reading, buckle up, we got several verses here. So Paul says this, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now I want you to pick up on these words as we go through them. Here we're talking Abraham and here's this word believe and I want you to notice words like believe, faith, law and works as we read, okay? So Abraham believed it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. That's a quote from the Old Testament. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all you who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Look at that statement. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Again, another quote from the Old Testament. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, another quote from the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to, and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on the promise but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise why then was the law given at all it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator a mediator however implies more than one party but God is one if the law therefore opposed to the prom- oh is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God absolutely not For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. And I'm going to jump ahead here because I think we get the point. How many times did Paul say faith and believe? Time. How many times did he say works of the law? a ton. This is the point that Paul is trying to make here in what we have is Galatians chapter three. What I need you to see is two people and two events. That's essentially what Paul is bringing us back to, two events and two people from the Bible, two well-known figures from the Bible. What are the two events? He's talking about a promise, and the other event is the law on Mount Sinai, and what are the people? Abraham and Moses. Who got the promise? Abraham. Who got the law? Moses. And this is what Paul is needing them to see and understand. He pulls from this Jewish history to help them see how we came to know God. He says, what brought you to God, faith or the law? And as he describes both of these, what Paul is making very clear is that there may be two paths, but only one path is going to lead to freedom. That only one path is going to lead to life. And Paul makes it very clear, it can't be just living a good moral life, following the Ten Commandments. It can't be that. And he spends time trying to help us understand this because he begins by reminding us, what was the purpose of the law? What do you think? What was the purpose of the law? What was the law given for? Why did God do that at all with Moses on Mount Sinai? 613 laws given ways and rules and guidelines on how to live your life. Show them that they couldn't do it. That's exactly right. It reminded them of sin. It reminded them of, the, of what they could not do. And I think the other side of that, too, is it also was a reminder to rein in yourself. That left to your own devices, you will run amok. You, will be, you can be as, wor- as bad as you want to be. And the law says, hey, let's keep this in here. Okay? So the purpose of the law was, yeah, to restrict bad behavior and also to remind us of our bad behavior. To remind us that we were insufficient on our own to get there. I mean, do we really need examples of these right here? I don't think so, right? We all can look around us in our world today and we can see unchecked evil, unchecked bad behavior all around us and the, the law was given to serve as some level of protection for us. Because left to our own, sometimes humanity can be pretty bad. And then it reminds us of that. I mean. Isn't it amazing in how quickly we can call evil good and good evil? Isn't it interesting how mocking people, speaking lies, unchecked greed, ignoring needs of those around us, grabbing for power, uh, and, and up to and including the injury and death of others. I mean, these are examples that I see happening around us. We need this reminder. We needed the law to remind us, to remind us of our pride, to remind us of our arrogance, our indifference, our selfishness. I don't know. I don't, I need to be reminded of that because left on my own, sometimes I think I'm all right. But not only does the law, sh- does Paul tell us the purpose of the law here, he also reminds us of the problem of the law because the law had some big, glaring problems Paul wanted us to see. And he's willing to shine the light on it. You know what the first problem is? It was temporary. It was never meant to be the permanent solution of finding our way to God. It was never meant to be the end all. It was provisional in nature. Never meant to be seen as the answer. Paul said, we read it, it's gonna be useful until when? Till Christ comes, right? The seed comes. And who's the seed? Christ. That's what he's saying, until Christ came, it was never meant to be that solution. And it served a purpose but it served a temporary purpose. But then he goes on, there's another point problem he points out, and he says it's insufficient. It's insufficient. It cannot do what you think it can do. It's a poor stand-in for what's to come. Amy talked about it last week. If the law could give life, it would. But life can't come through the law. It can't make you righteous. It can't really even change your behavior. It can try to modify your behavior. And why is that? Because it can't change your heart. It can't make you a child of God. And Paul says, he says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God. And as I was studying this week, I thought this leads me to a very important idea. If 2000 years ago, Paul tells us about the insufficiency of the law to save us, or even really change behavior, then why do we spend so much time today passing laws and fighting in court to have the law on display for all people to see? I mean, last year, this year, Texas passed a law about a specific poster size of the Ten Commandments that has to be hung in every public classroom. Why? Paul tells us that's not going to do any good that's not going to change any hearts. It's not changing any minds. And it made me sit here and wonder. We have court battles over whether monuments of the Ten Commandments should be up and erected. Why do we do this? It should lead, what Paul is saying here should lead us to a place where we have a conversation about my relationship with the law, our relationship with good works or perceived good works. Why do we expect the law today to do something different than Paul said it was going to do back then? And I think our constant attempts in this area should really make us question what we believe about what saves. I wonder sometimes if we get concerned. Because if you didn't notice, this is the first time in his letter to the church at Galatia that he talks about the Holy Spirit. And when you bring the Holy Spirit into things, it really changes things up a lot. Because here, we have a choice. Are we going to trust the Spirit that's been given to those who follow Jesus, those who are in Christ, or do we not trust that enough and we go, well, let's put the law on top of that so that we can rein in bad behavior. Now, I'm not saying we abolish all the laws in the country and all that. I'm just saying as Christians, Why do we put so much faith in the law and not trust in the work of the Holy Spirit that should be working in and through us, in and around us? What is our relationship to the law? Specifically the law that Paul is talking about here. I'm wondering if we've put a little too much confidence in what the law can and cannot do. But I digress. Paul isn't saying that the law is unimportant. He's just reminding us that what the law promised to do, couldn't do. The law promised life, but it couldn't deliver. The law promised life. If you do this, this will happen. You ever read the books of wisdom in the Old Testament, Proverbs? Do this and this will happen. And how many times do you get about halfway through and you look at that and you go, that has not been my experience perfect world, that may be what happens. The law could not do what it promised to do. And Paul is really not even criticizing them for looking back to the law for guidance. He's just criticizing them saying, great, I'm glad you went back, but you didn't go back far enough. You got things in the wrong order. You stopped at the wrong event. He says, don't stop at Mount Sinai in the coming down with Moses of the Ten Commandments, go a little further back to the man named Abraham Abraham, and the promise. You see, what Paul needs them and us to understand about our faith, it's built on something that started thousands of years ago from us and 430 years ago before Moses and the law. And it was this promise, a promise that was initiated by God, that God was under no obligation to make, a promise based on the nature and the character of God, not because Abraham was some special guy, but it was always about God, and he chooses to begin this relationship with Abraham, his descendants, and ultimately the entire world. But why does Paul go back to Abraham? Probably because that's where his critics went. Those agitators, that's where they went. After all, Paul's whole point, the people there in that church, those churches, they're like, we need circumcision, we need circumcision because we're not full Christians if we don't have it, and Paul's going, look, I'm going to take you back to Abraham. He's number one on the circumcision list. Let's just, he was the first right there. He started this all with the covenant and the promises of God. And he's going back there to say, look, if you're going to go back there, figure out what God's saying about him that made this work in the beginning. Paul says, you look at Abraham and how did Abraham come to know God? Was it the circumcision? No, had nothing to do with the circumcision. It was through faith. It was always about the faith, believing God comes. He makes this outrageous promise that to a childless man about inheriting some land and becoming the father of a great nation and that the entire world would be blessed through this one man. And you know what Abraham does? I believe you. I believe. And then his life played that out, showing that belief. And he had faith that God could do what God said he was gonna do. And that's it. And that's it. And why did God do this? Why did God do this for Abraham and ultimately all of us? One word. Grace. Grace. God decided to show his favor to this one man and ultimately, by extension, the entire world. I was reading this week, there's a late theologian named John Stott, and he looks at Galatians 3 and he says, don't miss the contrasts that Paul brings out here, which are kind of significant the contrast between the law and the promise because in the law what does God say God says thou shalt thou shalt thou shalt but when you go back and look at the promise what does God say there I will I will I will don't miss that that's significant from the law what does it do it set forth a religion of man Man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. But what does the promise set forth? It's a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. What's the law say? Obey me. What's the promise say? Believe. (laughs) The law is built all around commandments and works. But with Abraham, God's dealings are in the category of promises, grace, and faith. Hearing that, you can understand Paul's frustration in continuing to ask them, why would you continue to trust the law when God has given us the promise? Mm -hmm. There's a significance there. And Paul isn't setting up Abraham against Moses. He's not saying Moses was unimportant. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that the same God who gave the law also gave the promise but he gave the promise first. I mean, think about this. Before there was ever any law for Abraham to follow, there was the promise. And just those, there's no confusion. What is the promise? It's not about some land in the Middle East that Abraham was gonna get. Yeah, that's part of it. But the promise was bigger than that. The promise was salvation, redemption, justification, righteousness, a spiritual inheritance. To all who are in Christ. And what does Paul what Paul does when he starts talking about the seed is he's showing how this promise from Abraham, this seed, this this theme, this thread runs through the law in Moses, and it leads us all the way up to the fulfillment in Jesus. And Paul says this: that promise that was made can't be changed. It's irrevocable. Through hundreds of years of Jewish people who turned their back on God went through captivity. None of that negated. The crucifixion of Jesus did not negate it. The promise God made was made for good. And I love how Paul brings this together to a Galatian audience who wouldn't have been mostly Jewish, would mostly been Gentile. And he continues to bring in these things about the promises. He says, think about how this promise works. And I want you to think about how this would have made these Galatian Christians feel when Paul says this, scripture foresaw that the God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What's he telling them there? You're in, you're included. That promise to a Jewish guy thousands of years ago is the promise that you get to claim. As I read through this chapter several times this week, I began to see progressions progressions, the order of things became very important. And what were the progressions? It started with Abraham and Moses leading to Jesus and we're getting to next couple weeks, the Holy Spirit. They were stopping at Moses, but you gotta go back further. Another progression was it began with the promise, led to the law to show us how insufficient the law could be, but then brings us to the good news of Jesus, this belief in grace that we have from belief Yeah, there's obedience and freedom. And that's a critical one, too, because how often do we think obedience has to be first and then belief? But Paul is going to tell us in the coming weeks that it begins with belief. And our belief, when we encounter Jesus and have a life-changing experience with him, it will change how we live. We will want to obey. And then it's through obedience that we're going to find freedom. And we'll deal with that in the coming weeks. I'll tell you, I feel like a bit of a broken record at this point. But Paul is hammering this point home from very different angles. And the question is just simply this, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Your ability, your good deeds to keep the law, or faith, believing the good news of Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection. As I said in the beginning, Paul is laying out two paths before us. There's the path of faith, path of works, path of promise, the path of law. But only one of those paths leads to life. Which path are you on? Let's pray.